Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert, I want to ask you a question. Are you the kind of person who makes New Year's resolutions? Oh, uh, I try to be very careful about it these days. And I also exclusively begin my new year on Chinese New Year these days. Uh, oh, what day is that? Uh, it's going to be, uh, I want to say February 8th this year. I could be wrong, but it's, yeah, it generally occurs like one month out from, uh, from Western New Year because I feel Mainly, I feel that like if you're if you're going to get excited about like turning over a new leaf or getting back in the role of things, uh, however you choose to take on the new year, like I try not to to you know strap myself to the mask too much uh, and make any kind of uh, you know a weird bargain about uh, the future, but. It's like just coming off the the holidays. It's just too much chaos. Everything's out of order. It's the worst time in the world to decide you're going to start a new habit or a new cycle of doing things, or that you're going to, or that you're going to engage in any level of betterment. Better to wait until January is over and try that stuff out in February. That's, yeah, that's my approach. Yeah, I, I think if you're going to make a resolution, you should do it in the spring. Yeah. <laughs> Did, yeah. But have, have you ever made a New Year's resolution and like actually followed through with it? Like if you've tried it, was it always just kind of a thing you thought about for a bit and then, eh. um, maybe in the, you know, earlier on, but like I think last year I decided to stick to a, a basic yoga schedule, like decide what classes I was going to go to and make a point to go to them. And, and that worked out well, but that was a reasonable goal, like something that, that I was already sort of halfway meeting. And then I just said, all right, we're going to just roll with this, this routine. Uh, once things get going in February, I don't know if you've ever noticed this to be the case at a gym or YMCA or something that you go to, but they're just horrible in like January, first half of February. Oh yeah. You, you just, it's, it's, they're packed. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the herd thins out, you know, suddenly nobody's coming anymore by March. Yeah, yeah, I definitely noticed that because I, I go to yoga at a, at a YMCA and, uh-huh. and, and I love it. I love my yoga teachers. I love the classes, but you do see that influx of new faces and a lot of them are not gonna, not gonna stick around. And some of them will show up with their jeans on and socks and with no <laughs> understanding of what they're uh, about to get into. Some will show up 15 or 20 minutes late or leave 15 or 20 minutes early. But it's, yeah, it's just part of the process of people setting goals, trying new things and not everything works out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But of course that, that's always the kind of goal you see, right? When people make new year's resolutions, they, it seems like they're almost always inherently narcissistic like they are for personal improvement but they're for that kind of personal improvement like i'm going to quit smoking i'm going to lose weight i'm going to get in shape they're for things that that aren't bad i mean they're mm-hmm. good for you but they're uh they're you know sort of self-focused yeah i mean those seem to be the ones that dominate all the lists and advice columns that come out around this yeah. time of year uh, uh, we we want to you know we want to look sexier and feel stronger and live forever <laughs> this uh, is going to be the year i live forever exactly right and really locking down eternity this year um but instead of these kind of self-gratifying uh you know self-improvement projects i wondered about the personal betterment project of of trying to be a better person. I know sometimes people think about this in New Year's and 
And, and, and why shouldn't we think about it? Like if we're going to try to commit to changing our lives in some way, uh, for the better, why not try to be better humans? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I know some individuals do engage in, uh, in this kind of goal setting, but, uh, but it's, it's also just as if not more difficult. It's more, it's just as challenging as trying to change your body. You're going to try yeah. and change your, your mind state instead. You're going to change the way that you interact with those around you and what you care about and, and try and do so in a, in a meaningful way that actually lasts beyond yeah. January. Yeah. I mean, how realistic is it to say, this is the year I stop kicking strangers down flights of stairs? <laughs> because if that's already your thing, I mean, people really don't change all that much. People change, but it, it, it takes a little bit more to, to really turn over a new leaf. Well, th- that's an interesting thing you point out. People don't change. And by and large, that's the extent to which that's true is depressing. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to truly change our behavior in an effective, significant and permanent way. But fortunately, we do have some science about the mind. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're going to end up talking about today. If you make a New Year's resolution that you actually want to be a better person, you want to live a more moral life and treat others better, and not just in this vague form of, uh, you know, I'm going to do it some kind kind of promise, but in a way that actually gets results and changes your behavior, how can we do it? It seems like we should look to science. Yeah, because we were talking about leveling up the old uh, D&D character sheet here. We're talking about changing our stats uh, what does science have to say about stat adjustments on the real life character sheet? Right. And I can already hear people objecting and saying, uh, wait a minute, you can't do that because science is about empirical facts and morality is about values and those things don't mix. Now, one of the things I'd say is that there, in fact, is an ongoing debate about whether you can derive moral values from science. I'm not saying you can, but we don't need to go there for the purpose of this discussion. Like, that's a debate we don't even have to enter uh, because I, I would put up an analogy of engineering. Like, let's say you're building a hydroelectric dam. Okay. There is nothing about physics, chemistry, fluid dynamics, any of that that tells you that it's best to build a dam that produces the most electricity, costs the least money to build, has the lowest ecological impact on the river that you put it in, and has the least likelihood of failing and flooding everybody downstream. But if you start with those priorities as your assumptions, you can most definitely use scientific fields like physics and chemistry and fluid dynamics to build the best possible dam to achieve those goals. And I think you can sort of approach morality in the same way. If you start with some given goals of improving moral behavior, and especially you want to start with specific ones like uh, like maybe making yourself more generous yeah. or being more honest, uh, you can use research in neuroscience and psychology and, and related fields to optimize your moral behavior and use what we know about the human mind and the brain to fix the problem and get results. To sort of trick your brain into making you the person you want to be. Yeah. So before we get into the actual research, I do definitely want to start with some caveats because uh, the scientific study of moral behavior is far from perfect. And there are a lot of potential difficulties we encounter when uh, entering this field. One example would be 
a sort of lack of agreement on moral goals. Like if a study is being conducted by a member of a religion that says tomatoes are minor gods and eating them is a heinous sin, abstention from tomato products is a crucial part of moral behavior. And this is why it's important to study clearly specified types of behavior one at a time, like studying how much money someone gives to a charity as opposed to just studying how good of a person are you. Yeah. And and also in this getting into things that are more or less universally considered moral positives. Yeah. Um, Another thing would be that I think morality is an area where you have to be especially careful about experimenter bias. For example, it's probably no surprise that uh, if your experimenters are a group of liberals, they might find that liberals are more moral than conservatives and vice versa. If they're conservatives, they might find conservatives are more moral. Um, so you have to be especially cognizant of your of your, uh, you know, experimental controls put in place to limit the fact that the extent to which bias can affect the outcomes. And then you've got methodological difficulties like how do you test to see how moral somebody's behavior is. Yeah. You know, you can invite them into a lab and have them play a game or do some kind of interaction under controlled conditions, but people might behave very differently under controlled conditions than they do in the wild. Yeah, it's one thing to give somebody a questionnaire or have them read a story and tell you how they feel about it or put some pebbles in a cup, but... Ultimately, we're talking about the, the real morality takes place in outside the lab. Yeah, but then if you want to track people's morality outside the lab, you're pretty much going to have to use self-reporting, right? People are going to have mm-hmm. to report to you what they did, and there is a pretty obvious problem there. How honest can we expect people to be about what their moral behaviors are? So despite all those difficulties, I think this is still a, a field we can study and a place where we can try to look at some studies and apply them to our moral behaviors to see if we can hack our morals and, and get under the get under the bedrock there and move some things around. So I, I think maybe the first place we should start is by looking at some traditional answers to the question of how to be a better person. Uh, like this is not a new question. Obviously, people right. have been talking about this for thousands of years. Uh, you could look back to Socrates, Plato and Aristotle or, you know, all the way up to more recent moral philosophers go a couple hundred years ago to Immanuel Kant. These are people who had very strong opinions about how you could derive from first principles what the moral life was and how to live it. So the, the question is, does moral philosophy or studying ethics make you a better person? And this is where uh, a really interesting article from Ian Magazine comes into play, um, written by uh, Eric uh, Schwitzgivel, uh, titled, uh, well, the Ian Magazine titles kind of shift, uh, but yeah. I think Cheeseburger Ethics, all yeah. on, with kind of a subhead, how often do ethics professors call their mothers? <laughs> right. And, and it attempts to answer this question where uh, Schwitzgivel, and he, he chronicles his work and his work with another person named Joshua Rust over the years to study... How exactly do people who study ethics and moral philosophy behave in their lives? Does does studying ethics make you a better person? And they seem to have found time and time again that the answer is no. <laughs> Ethicists who are you know professors who study ethics and moral philosophy for a living don't seem to be any better or worse than other professors. So professors of chemistry, history, etc. By a huge list of measures. Uh, they give a, they give a list in this article. Schwitzgabel says 
He looked at whether or not you vote in public elections, how often you call your mother, uh, eating the meat of mammals, donating to charity, littering, uh, disruptive chatting and door slamming during philosophy presentations, <laughs> responding to student emails, attending conferences without paying registration fees. There's a real killer there. Um, organ donation, blood donation, theft of library books, and uh, overall moral evaluation by one's departmental peers based on personal impressions. So there you get at least some third-party info there. Uh, honesty in responding to survey questions and joining the Nazi party in 1930s Germany. Oh, and, of course. and what they found is that the ethicists uh, and, and the moral philosophers just they're like everybody else. They're like the other professors studying. This doesn't make them do any better on these tests. Now, one thing that they did find was different is that ethicists tend to accept more rigorous moral standards than non-ethicists, yet they don't seem to be any more likely to actually follow them. (laughs) So a couple of examples they give. One is that ethicists are way more likely than other people to say that eating the meat of mammals is morally wrong, yet they don't eat the meat of mammals any less than anybody else. Hmm. Uh, they're also more likely to say that you should give more of your income, a higher percentage to charity than other people say, but they don't give more than other people do. So it's like they, they tend to accept higher standards, but they can't meet them. All right. So they have a more precise understanding of the sort of the ethical suit of armor we all should be wearing, but they're, they're no more likely than we are to slip it on. Exactly. Yeah. Th- that's a good way of putting it. And there are a lot of explanations. It's actually Schwitzgabel's article is a really good one, and I highly recommend reading it. It's very interesting, but and he gives lots of explanations for why this might be the case. Uh, but yeah, it, it appears that studying ethics and moral philosophy is not the answer. It's not necessarily bad. It's not that you shouldn't do it, but it's not going to make you behave more morally, at least statistically. Now, th- there's another very traditional, classic answer to this question: how to be a better person. You get some religion in you, right? Yeah, and the uh, the Ian uh, magazine article went into that a little bit, and mentioning uh, members of the clergy, and uh, in questioning uh, some members of the clergy, asking them, "Hey, is the is a member of the clergy uh, are they a better person than yeah. the the average person outside um, uh, the church?" And they say, "Oh, you know, it's probably about the same. Maybe the clergy are a little worse." Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and of course he could chalk that he chalked that up to. It's possible they were just being humble about mm-hmm. their own profession, but at least as as far as they presented publicly, they didn't think that they were any better than anybody else. And there have been plenty of studies that have looked into the relationship between levels of religiosity and moral behavior. Now, when we get into this, it's, of course, worth saying that this is a super loaded topic. People often have very strong feelings about whether or not religion is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, so it's, again, very easy to see how bias could creep into scientific research on this subject if we're not careful. Uh, but like we said, there there have been lots of studies. Uh, the answers seem to be, I would say, very complicated and contradictory. You see stuff going on both sides in both directions on this. Uh, for example, I, I know you found one study that said religious belief in hell is linked to lower crime, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that was um, a pa- 2012 paper, Divergent Effects of Belief in Heaven and Hell on National Crime Rates by Azim F. Sharif. 
um, well, he co-authored it at any rate, a uh, psychologist. And, uh, yeah, he compared national crime rates uh, with rates of belief in heaven and hell in 67 countries. And uh, he came back with some interesting findings. Uh, first of all, heaven's belief rate is almost always higher than hell's belief rate. <laughs> um, and that kind of collaborates my personal theory that hell is always uh, an unwanted an- add-on for many religions or or for even just semi-religious people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the side dish we didn't order, and generally we don't want to eat it. Uh, but the, the paper's uh, major statistical finding was that nations with higher belief rates in hell predicted lower crime rates, uh, while higher belief rates in heaven predicted higher crime rates. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, so uh, essentially the, the idea here, I guess, that you could say that the the stick was more effective than the carrot uh-huh. uh, as far as the religious worldview goes uh, and that hell-fearing citizens are more mindful of screwing up in this life while the heaven crowd think they've got it knocked in the next life no matter what. Huh. It's... um. But but even this study underlines some of the problems here, because when you just talk about religion, what are you talking about? Religion has their, uh, one religion or even one uh, slice of a particular faith might uh, tweak the carrot stick uh, scenario a little bit in one direction or the other. Yeah. Uh, how is this system of faith enforcing moral behavior? Is, is it, you know, is it really cutting you off from the world around you and and uh and focusing inward? Is it focusing outward? It's going to vary from faith to faith. Yeah, and it's going to vary from person to person. I mean, part yeah. of the problem here is that when we're dealing with science, we're always dealing with uh, broad statistical phenomena. So it might be the case that in general, religion makes people met better, but it actually makes you worse or vice versa. In general, it makes people worse, but it makes you better. You could be the anomaly. You could be different than the average. Yeah. And I also want to mention that there's a 2003 Harvard study that determined uh, economic growth responds positive, positively to the extent of religious beliefs, notably those in heaven and hell. So their take was that higher religious beliefs stimulate growth, stimulate economic growth because they help sustain behavior. But again, okay. that's a an economic view. But then again, there uh, there's I know we read some research this year about uh, the effects of religious belief or at least correlations between religious religiosity and children and uh, altruism. Right. Yeah. This was a, a new study that came out uh, titled The Negative Association Between uh, uh, Religiousness and Children's Altruism Across the World. And this was published in the journal Current Biology. It was a study of uh, 1,170 children in Canada, China, Jordan, Turkey, South Africa, and the United States, and included 510 Muslims, 280 Christians, and 323 non-religious children. And what did they find? Their key findings were that, uh, first of all, family religious identification decreases children's altruistic behaviors. Decreases. Decreases it. Uh, and that religiousness predicts parent-reported child sensitivity to injustices and empathy. And that children from religious households are harsher in their punitive tendencies. Okay, so so this found, at least in this one study, this broad survey of, of religious and non-religious children, and the children for, were from a couple of different religions, mm-hmm. the religious kids did not do better in terms of being kinder to others, being more altruistic. In fact, they did worse. Yeah, I, I imagine, I mean, you could sort of view it as the religion just provides a framework in which we make sense of our own uh, moral achievements and failings rather than a, a guideline that holds us up. Yeah, but 
But then again, there have been other studies that, of course, found religious spurring, uh, sort of religious priming caused people to behave better, right? Yeah, there was a 2000 study, 2007 uh, paper in Psychological Science that found both religious and non-religious people shared more money with a stranger after reading sentences containing, uh, you know, various religious words such as spirit and God. But people were also more generous after reading words associated with secular authorities such as police. Uh, and then there's another study that was published in 73 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And they found that more religious people were just as likely as less, less religious people to bypass a stranger in distress. Yeah. And, and that parody does seem to come through in the literature a good bit. I, I want to look at one more uh, statistical study on on religious behavior. And it wasn't just on religious behavior, but it included that. And that was a 2014 study in in science called Morality in Everyday Life by Wilhelm Hoffman, Daniel C. Wyzynski, Mark J. Brandt, and Linda J. Skitka. And uh, this is where they, they got a group of 1,252 participants, and they were each participant received five text messages a day for three days. Each text message had a link to the study's website, which prompted them to record moral and immoral experiences they'd gone through in the previous hour. So did anything... In interestingly moral, immoral just happened in your life. Did somebody do something moral or immoral to you? Did you do something moral or immoral? Uh, just a, some examples from a, <laughs> these were some great examples I read on a, a news release about this, the, of the good deeds reported included sharing an extra sandwich with a homeless man. That's okay, nice. That's good. But examples of the types of bad deeds reported were arranging an adulterous encounter ah. and quote, Hired someone to kill a muskrat that's not ultimately causing any harm. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I feel I can feel good then that I have not uh, done either of those things this week. Right. So maybe you should license yourself to do something evil because you haven't had a muskrat assassinated. I like that they were just arranging an adulterous encounter because that, right. that brings to mind that maybe they were not engaged in it, but they just uh, uh, orchestrated the, uh, the the rendezvous. Oh, well, I mean, that was the I, a lot of uh, after the Ma- Ashley Madison leak, a lot of people had this defense, right? Like I, I was sort of seeking an affair, but I never actually had one. <laughs> um, but anyway, so what did they find in the study? They found over the broad statistics of the study, religious and non-religious people committed both moral and immoral acts with about the same frequency. There just really wasn't a big difference in, hmm. in how they acted. So these are uh, what we've just talked about, uh, moral philosophy and ethics and, and religion. These are not arguments against adhering to a religion or studying moral philosophy. It's not like saying, you know, that those are bad things to do. It's just certainly not clear that either of these will put you on the path to moral excellence. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to the suit of armor um, analogy I made earlier. It's, I guess the way to look at it is taking on a religious faith or even just kind of a pseudo-religious faith or a new age way of looking at it, any kind of worldview, it's not an exoskeleton that's going to power your body. Yeah. It's it's more in line with a, I don't know, a suit of armor, a clothing, a mapping system, some sort of framework for how moral behavior can work, but you're still going to have to move in that thing yourself. You have yeah. to, you, Your muscles are going to be the thing making you walk across the room. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. It's just like the ethics thing. In both cases, the religion and the study of ethics might give you clearer ideas about what you think your moral goals should be. But in order to get the motivation to follow through on your moral uh, convictions, 
you're, you just might need some better tricks, better tricks up your sleeve. Yeah. And we might find, find these tricks in studying psychology. So what do we know about the human brain and moral behavior? And are there any ways we can use science to trick the former into the latter? Okay. Okay. So we're now going to be looking at some scientific studies about factors that correlate to or perhaps even cause differences in how we practice moral behavior towards others. And I think one of the, the biggest areas that's been studied in, in this field is generosity. Uh, the, the act of giving and giving more to others, taking, you know, self-sacrificially offering to other people things that can help them. And there have been lots and lots of studies in this field, right? Yes, there have. And certainly we're not going to be able to, to explore all of them today. Yeah, but uh, we're going to try to offer a selection of some that we found interesting and that might be useful in coming up with strategies of improving your moral behavior. And one of the findings has to do with how we respond to the idea of the victim yeah. in, uh, in the case where somebody needs generosity or somebody could benefit from your help. Yeah, this is uh, from a paper, Sympathy and Callousness, the Impact of uh, Deliberative Thought on Donations to Identifiable and Statistical Victims. And this was published in uh, the journal Organizational Behavior and Human Performance. So the study basically looked at the whole face of the tragedy angle. Yeah, and you can probably be familiar with this just from your experience, right? Yeah. There's sort of, uh, you know that old quote uh, that uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Yeah, it it sort of goes along those lines, right? Yeah, this boils down to the you know, the, the common fact that if, if a tragedy occurs somewhere in the world, what are you going to respond to? You're going to respond to a statistical breakdown about how many people are suffering and what happened, or are you going to respond to that one evocative photo of a single individual who's suffering? Yeah, and it you know it it shouldn't be the case, but it is the case that the former is true. Uh, I mean. If if you care about helping one person, you should care a hundred times as much about helping a hundred people, right? Mm-hmm. But that is not, in fact, the case. That is not what our brains do. Yeah, this study found that when thinking deliberatively, people discount sympathy towards identifiable victims but fail to generate sympathy towards statistical victims. So... Uh, some of the key takeaways from from this uh, study were that teaching or priming people to recognize the discrepancy in giving toward identifiable and statistical victims has a perverse effect. Individuals give less to identifiable victims, but they don't actually increase giving to statistical victims. So, oh, no. So this is not just what we mentioned, but the fact that thinking about it deliberately doesn't help. In fact, it makes you less generous. Yeah, like I guess it's kind of like you see through. What were the old TV ads where for just pennies a day you can help this child? Um, yeah, uh, I can't remember her name. The actress from What All in the Family would do those uh, commercials. No, it's true. You know, if mm-hmm. there there's like a you know Save the Children or something yeah. like that, they they'd say this child is. Jeffrey, you know, Jeffrey, is, Jeffrey needs help when really the problem is that there are many, many children who are suffering. Yeah, but the weird thing is that this study seems to indicate that we're more likely to want to help Jeffrey. Uh-huh. But then if we are convinced that Jeffrey is either isn't real or we're just like, that's just one kid and there's this huge problem going on. Realizing that we don't actually uh, want to. We don't even want to help Jeffrey anymore. Yeah, we don't want to help Jeffrey. We're not, we don't end up helping everyone else either. So it just kind of stalls out. Um, 
they, they found that if organizations want to raise money for a charitable cause, it's far better appeal, to appeal to the heart with that photo of Jeffrey than to the head with a, you know, a full sort of NPR, uh, breakdown about who's suffering and what the needs are. Yeah. Feeling rather than analytical thinking drive donation. Yeah. So that's kind of unfortunate because on one hand, you always want to provide people with the most true, accurate information, uh, possible, right? But it, it turns out that in general, People respond more to perhaps a skewed, uh, not fully accurate picture of the problem. You're more likely to help if you haven't thought about the problem all that much and you're responding emotionally to one particular anecdote about a particular person's suffering rather than a true, you know, numerical representation of the scope of the problem and asked to think about it deliberately, right? Yeah. So anyway, the takeaway from this though might be that if you want to be more generous, focus on the focus on the anecdote, right? Yeah. Um focus on on individuals and and also like don't give into the uh don't don't give into the, the into the skepticism of or just the negativity of saying, "Hey, you're trying to manipulate me with this picture of this uh this child or this suffering individual." Like, I guess take it at face value. Um, you know, unless there's something shady going on, take it at face value that, yeah, this is what's going on and I need to emotionally connect with this. Okay. Well, what's another finding about weird ways we might encourage or trick our brains into being more generous? Uh, well, one way is to endure ritual pain. Uh, oh, ritual pain, huh? Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, so, uh, th- this is one that I actually was turned on to by, uh, an, uh another, uh, Ian Magazine, uh, article. And this one came from anthropologist Dimitri, uh, Zagalates. And he was studying, um, uh, in, in particular, he was looking at, uh, Thyapusam, uh, festival, which is a, a Hindu festival. Uh, uh, Thai Pusam is a, a Hindu festival celebrated on the full moon in the Tamil month of Thai. And devotees pray and make vows. And when their prayers are answered, they fulfill their vows by piercing parts of their body, such as their cheeks, their tongues, and backs, uh, before, um, you know, carrying a, a sacred vessel along a, a four kilometer uh, parade route. Oh boy. Yeah. So it does sound painful. Yeah. <laughs> he was, so he was looking at this, uh, while, and studying it, uh, while uh, also contemplating uh, the work of French sociologist uh, Emile Durkheim, who argued in Elementary Forms of Religious Life, that's a 1912 work, that the collective por- performance of ritual generates a kind of electricity, an ecstatic state of shared excitement that uh, he referred to as collective effervescence. Hmm. So... Taking that in mind, he l- looked to see what what kind of effects does this uh, painful ritual have on behavior, uh, and in particularly generosity. Uh, he found, quote, those who had participated in the extreme ritual gave twice as much as those who had taken part in collective prayer. In collective prayer. He found the same high levels of generosity among those who uh, had him, him themselves gone through the painful activities uh, as as those who had just merely followed the procession and uh, without actually engaging in self-torture. So, as it turned out, the painful ri- ritual boosted pro-social behavior for its participants. Huh. Uh, so, so you could look at this in a number of ways, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could think that, well, maybe just uh, the, the sort of ecstatic state of mind that this ritual puts you in primes you to, to give more. Or you could look at this as a function of... Uh, just sort of a secondary function of being deeply involved in a in a social and religious community, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, on one hand, yeah, you can also say that, you know, it's, you're feeling this pain and therefore in pain, you're maybe more empathetic to the suffering of others. But indeed, you're also putting yourself in uh, this collective effervescence. You're allowing yourself to perhaps, um, catch generosity to, uh, to, to, to catch it as if it were uh, some sort of a, a disease or an illness. And that leads us to another thing that uh, scientists have found about generosity, which is that to a certain extent, it's contagious. Yeah. Uh, we, we, and it's actually in specific ways that it's contagious. There are other ways in which it's apparently not contagious. But yeah, what have people found about the social contagion of generosity? Well, there was, uh, there's a paper, The Social uh, Contagion of Generosity, my, uh, Melina Teveskova and Michael W. Macy. And they, they basically looked at two ways that you can encounter, uh, generosity. Either you're, you've, re- you've been a recipient or you've watched someone else receive it. Uh-huh. And, uh, they found that receiving help can increase the willingness to be generous towards others, but merely observing help can have the opposite effect, especially among those who have not received help yet. Uh-oh. So there's kind of a, like, you know, uh, what's what's the word? Like, you know, passing the buck on. Um, yeah. Passing it, what, playing it there's, forward or something? Uh, paying it forward. Paying it forward, yeah. Passing the buck. Passing yes. the buck. Uh, the buck thing. stops here yeah. because I don't practice generosity to anyone. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, yeah. The, there, I think there's a horrible movie about that in there. <laughs> I, th- I believe so. I've not seen it, so I can't pass judgment on it. But well, Yeah, but the idea is that somebody who has had a kind thing done for them is more likely to do a kind thing for somebody else. Yeah. And that was actually, that was uh, that finding was replicated in the 2014 paper, Morality in Everyday Life, the same paper I talked about earlier. This is the found, email? Yeah, that one, found... The text message one? Yeah, it found no major difference between uh, religious and non-religious people. It also found um, support for moral contagion. It, they found that people who benefited from a moral deed were more likely to do something moral for somebody else later on. So you could potentially chalk this up for being an argument for being a part of if not a religious community, then some sort of close community that engages in generous activity, right? Yeah, or even... To each other and then also to outsiders. I mean, if you really wanted to trick your brain this way, you could set up a relationship with somebody where you say, hey, you're going to be my uh, generosity contagion buddy, mm-hmm. and every day you're going to do three nice things for me that I didn't expect that'll maybe prime me to just be a more generous person. Uh, for the rest of the world. So, like, pretend you're a vagrant, as if you're a character in a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when people are generous to you, this will instill generosity in yourself. Yeah, it could yeah. be. But at the same time, uh, if you want to trick your brain into being more generous, apparently you shouldn't watch people being generous to others. Right. Because that you can just kind of diffuse the responsibility there. Yeah. You know, you watch somebody else doing some community work, and you think, oh, that's nice. Well, I'm glad those people are getting the help they need. I can go, you know, kick somebody down a flight of stairs. Yeah. Or maybe even think, hey, nobody's helping me out. Well, I'm yeah. going to go on and do my thing. One more funny thing I found about generosity, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, was just uh, the finding that supposedly there are gender differences in what encourages uh, people to be more generous. And uh, there is a study that found that apparently men are more likely to donate to the poor if reminded that doing so indirectly benefits them as well, as opposed to other encouraging justifications like, oh, the person really deserves the help or Mm -hmm. they've had a hard time. Men are most likely to donate if you make the case to them that the donation is good for the donor. Huh. Okay. So if you need to trick yourself 
with that in mind, uh, you can certainly uh, <laughs> use that for manipulative purposes. Uh, well, let's move on to another quality, honesty. Honesty. Uh, Robert, I want to put you in a scenario. Okay. Imagine I give you a die, like a gambling die. Okay. And I tell you that I'm going to pay you a sum of money corresponding to the number of your rolls. So the higher you roll, the higher the payout. Six dots gets you the most money. The, the Cyclops eye gets you the least. And I ask you to roll your die once so that I can't see it. And this is the money roll. Okay. And then I allow you to roll the die a few more times just so you can rest assured that the die is not loaded. It's a regular die. You can roll whatever number. And then I ask you via a computer terminal to enter the number from your initial money roll. Now, remember, nobody saw the roll but you. You can enter any number you want, but should you be honest? Well, how much money are we talking here, Joe? Well, let's, let's say that I'm giving you, uh, about 250 or three bucks per, per dot on the die. Okay. And then we're tallying them all up. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, I'm probably going to be inclined to just play by the rules because I'm going to win some money. I'm going to lose some money. And, uh, there's not really any advantage in tweaking it in my favor, but if it no, were like, no, you're not going to lose any money. I mean, well, I mean, but I am going to lose out on a maximum payout, right? Yeah. But the, the amount you could lose by not by not reporting is not that much. You could get up to what, like eighteen bucks, maybe. Or something. Yeah. Uh, okay. But if it were for a single amount, if we were doing one die roll for say three hundred bucks, uh-huh. and and I didn't have it in my head that this was like coming out of your pocket, that this wasn't going to hurt anybody, that basically you had three hundred dollars to spend on this experiment, right? Then and yeah, I would definitely uh, lie about it. So there's a price on your honesty. It, in, <laughs> if there is a price on my honesty, if it does not hurt anyone, sure. Yeah. I well, mean, it would be different if it was like I really wanted to you know, take my wife out to dinner for uh, our anniversary, <laughs> but I'm also going to do this crazy dice game instead. Well, let's go back to about 250 per per dot. OK. Uh, imagine this under two different scenarios. Number one, you can take as long as you want to enter the number into the computer. You do your rolls and you can just sit there and enter it whenever you want. The other scenario is you have to enter it very quickly, like within some number of seconds. Does this change what happens? Hmm. So I'm going to have less time to decide if I'm lying or not. In that case, I'd probably be tempted to just enter the truth. Yeah. Funny you should say that because actually there's a study from Psychological Science in 2012 that found exactly the opposite. They found uh, the paper was called Honesty Requires Time and Lack of Justifications by uh, uh, Shaul Shalvi, Ori Elder, and Yoela Berebi-Meyer. And they found that people who could take as long as they wanted ended up being more honest. But wait, you might be asking, how did they know how honest people were being if they couldn't see the die? Uh, and here, this is a interesting fact about the study. They just use the power of statistics. Over many rolls, the average die roll will will begin to converge on the natural average of three point five. You can do the math yourself. You know, add up one through six, and then divide by six possible possibilities. The average should be three point five. So, if you try this with many participants, and you notice at the end that their average is much higher than three point five, you can be pretty much certain that they're lying. Hmm. Uh, we, we can assume almost nobody lied to reduce their payout. Yeah. Uh, thus the answers consisted always of a mix of truthful reports and then deceitful inflated reports. So they did one experiment where, uh, they forced people to enter their result within 20 seconds. And then of course they gave people as much time as they wanted. 
And uh, for, the, for the people who had to enter their role within 20 seconds, they found an average of 4.6. People were really, really entering those sixes. And then they found that people uh, who did not have any time pressure entered a role of 3.9. So both groups inflated their averages. But the people who had more time to deliberate, who didn't have a time constraint, were more honest. They lied less. Huh. And then they did a separate experiment where they uh, they did it again, but they just gave people eight seconds, so even less time to make the decision. The people who had eight seconds had an average of 4.4, so a little bit less than the people who had 20 seconds. But the people who had no time limit reported an average of 3.4, so pretty much right on the average. Hmm. So basically, they're saying without time to reflect, people are going to default to cheating. Yes, so the take home here would be think long and hard about your moral decisions and that will perhaps lead you to the more moral choice. Well, though, that might not necessarily be the case with something like generosity. This is a funny thing where our 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 decision to be moral uh, and the way we hack our brain to follow through with it is different depending on what moral quality we're trying to encourage. According to this study. The longer and more deliberately you think about something, probably the more honest you're going to be, the less likely to cheat you're going to be. But uh, on the other one, you know, we we saw we saw the deliberative thinking about generosity made people less generous. Yeah. And in fact, there is a 2015 study from uh, the University of Missouri, Columbia, and they their findings actually say, trust your gut. Don't think about it. Just go with your gut instinct, and that's liable to be the more moral uh, choice. Huh, how'd that work out? Well, uh, and, and I should note that m- the moral choice here within the framework of the experiment relates to to cheating. Uh, so they took 100 individuals. They gave them a questionnaire to determine their their base dependency on gut instincts. And then they read them stories in which they, they make a mistake uh, and blame a coworker. And in the control group, they take full responsibility for the mistake. So okay. their findings were, first of all, that individuals who are prone to trust their instinctive hunches may at times be less likely to commit immoral acts compared to those who tend to discount their intuition. Huh. So, yeah, if you're the type of person who says, ah, is this the right choice? This is probably not the right choice. Then you're probably going to end up flipping, right? Uh, and they also found that people who tend to rely on their gut instincts uh, are less likely to cheat after reflecting on past experiences during which they behaved immorally. Oh, okay. And then they did a second experiment. The participants were asked to write about a time they acted immorally um, or a control topic with the control group. And then they were asked to take an unsolvable IQ test. People who <laughs> tended to rely on their gut feelings, uh, they found, are less likely to cheat after reflecting on a time when they behaved immorally. And the theory here is that people try to compensate for past bad behavior by acting morally in the present. So you might be, if you're a person who follows your gut instincts, you might be more likely to tell the truth if you think about a time you were dishonest in the past. Yeah, it kind of depends on what your gut instinct tends to be. What's your base gut instinct? If you, yeah. If, you, if your gut instinct is always to lie about your uh, your die roll, then... You know, stick with it. Uh, know what? Know your gut. Know yeah. if your gut is uh, is good or evil. Right. Well, I mean that that gut instinct. It sounds like what they're talking about to me is what we would call conscience, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, you you can have rational, deliberative processes about thinking about what's the right thing to do. Should I do this? Should I not do it? But then there's also that sort of involuntary uh, that that internal critic that you don't even really have control over. It's just the thing that nags at you that tells you, eh, you really shouldn't do this. That sounds like the kind of gut feeling to me, right? 
Yeah, I feel like, like mindfulness is a good take home from either of these. Like the greater extent to which you are just mindful of uh, the voices going on and the temptations and what's coloring your responses uh, can be a great aid in making the correct moral choice. Yeah. Uh, okay. I got another one. What about forgiveness? About uh, the, the, is there any science related to forgiving others, not holding grudges and letting things go? There is, and this is one that's uh, that's that's always fascinated me because because I I can be I'm I'm hard about holding on to my grudges sometimes. Yeah, and and I don't want to hold on to them, you know, because grudges are horrible. They weigh things. you down. They yeah. weigh you down. They fill your thought. You find yourself thinking about like somebody from high school that you hated, even though like that person they don't even exist anymore in your life, but they're still carrying weight uh, on your consciousness. You just get real happy when you see that person from high school post something embarrassing on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. I feel like everyone can can relate to this on some point. You know, you, you end up keeping your Nixon enemy list in your head, and <laughs> and you cling to it, but you really you don't want it in your life. Uh, you want to forget it. And uh, there's actually a 2014 study from the University of St Andrews in Scotland that was published in Psychological Science, and they found that the details of a transgression are more susceptible to forgetting when that transgression has been forgiven. Huh. So this is interesting when you think of unforgiven transgressions that might play out in your head. You know, it's essentially an unchecked off mental list. Because remember, as we've discussed before, uncompleted tasks also stick in the mind. Right. What's that? The Zygarnik effect? Yeah. 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 So it, you can see this applying to forgiveness. I, I, I'm yet to forgive that person. So they're right in my head you've right got, when I wake up. Yeah. You've got a box that isn't checked yet. Yeah. And, it, or I have not avenged myself. I have not murdered them in their sleep and dumped their body in a creek. Exactly. I mean, no matter what happens to that person, I, I don't know. I think I would go with the Kung Fu movie mentality on this is, it, it, you haven't really solved the problem until you've either forgiven them or they're dead and yeah. you've killed them. Or at least dead and, to you. If you can just, if you can just completely like wipe them off, then, then that works too, I guess. Right. And since we're not advocating vengeful murder here, the, the solution would seem to be forgiveness. And then there's also a 2015 study from the University of Missouri-Columbia that found that forgiving others protects women from depression, but not men, <laughs> thus pointing to the importance of gender-specific counseling or treatment. Huh. So they found that older women who forgave others were less likely to report depressive symptoms re- uh, regardless of whether they felt unforgiven by others themselves, while older men reported the highest levels of depression when they both forgave others and felt unforgiven by others. Oh, man. So they found that... They also found that while helpful, self-forgiveness didn't act as the protector against depression in the case of the unforgiven's mental state. So this kind of plays into the whole adage, like, oh, you, you have to forgive yourself before you can, you know, move past some, uh, you know, traumatic occurrence. Like, there's a little truth to that, but, but some people are just way too good at forgiving themselves. Oh yeah, yeah. Some people are like <laughs> that's the that's the easy part. They, they, like they did that the second after it happened, right? You know, you're like, oh, don't beat yourself up, and they're like, yeah, good advice. <laughs> And then there's also uh, um, some research from Ohio State University that suggests that people who have trouble metabolizing glucose in their bodies show more evidence of aggression and less willingness to forgive others. So they have this uh, this uh, transgression in their mind and they're just they have just more of an aggressive response to it and that there may be a um, <laughs> a body chemistry a scenario underlying it. They they point out, though, that the the. Potential problem here is the number of people who have trouble metabolizing glucose, mainly individuals with diabetes, is rising rapidly. 
Uh, from 1980 through 2008, the number of Americans with diabetes more than tripled from 5.6 million to 18.1 million. Well, that sounds like a difficult thing to turn into a recommendation for somebody's behavior. If it's yeah. like manage your internal blood sugar so that you don't have uh, blood sugar problems and that'll make you less aggressive to others. I mean, it's good to have good blood sugar mm-hmm. in any case. <laughs> um, and here is maybe another benefit of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, potentially boosting glucose levels could reduce some, you know, temporary aggressive behavior. So I don't know if you're feeling a little uh, unforgiving of someone, have a sucker, have a put a little extra honey in your tea and see how that uh, that suits you, I guess. But uh, sugar yourself responsibly. Yes, indeed. Now, here's another one that I found pretty interesting Offering the observation that it, it might be true that altruism, you know, the giving giving to others, uh, being kind and, and supportive of other people, is encouraged by a feeling of awe. And so huh. this is a May 2015 paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology called Awe, the Small Self and Pro-Social Behavior. They found that the feeling of awe may cause people to behave more altruistically than they normally would. Uh, the paper was by uh, Paul Piff, Pia Dietz. Matthew Feinberg and Daniel Stancato and Donker Keltner. Uh, and so uh, they, they offer a couple of things in terms of defining awe, just a couple of quotes from the paper here. One is that firsthand accounts of awe felt during experiences with religion and spirituality, nature, art, and music often center upon two themes, the feeling of being diminished in the presence of something greater than the self and the motivation to be good to others. Uh, and, and they define awe by saying it's an emotional response to perceptually vast stimuli that defy one's accustomed frame of reference in some domain. So you know what awe is. He's thinking about the, the scale of the universe, yeah. looking at a sunset or watching a volcano erupt or, you know, seeing things that are, uh, vast and huge and powerful and make you realize the, the smallness and powerlessness of yourself. Yeah. So Piff and colleagues, uh, they first got a sample of 1,500 people to complete a questionnaire to see how susceptible to awe they were. Uh, they played a game where they were given a number of raffle tickets, and they had the opportunity to share them with other people who didn't have raffle tickets of their own. And the researchers found, first of all, a correlation between people who reported a tendency to feel awe and generosity. So if you're one of these people who is likely to have experiences of awe, you're more likely to be generous. Uh, then they conducted four more experiments involving individual behavior tests. So people in an experimental group would be given an experience designed to induce awe, such as watching a slow motion video of droplets of water splashing into milk or watching a montage of large scale natural threats like tornadoes and volcanoes or being in the presence of huge eucalyptus trees and the, the majesty. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, Oh, Oh, the, the, <laughs> what, Oh, mighty the, eucalyptus, the, the koala bears. You know, <laughs> they, I feeling awe at the way they grip my skin. Uh, so the control groups were subjected to neutral experiences or experiences designed to cause other emotions like maybe pride or something. And what they found was, yes, the experience of self-diminishment we call awe does seem to cause people to behave more altruistically towards others. Huh. You know, thinking back, I, I can definitely relate to this idea of 
of, of awe and altruism. Uh, specifically, um, I've never been to Burning Man, but I have been <laughs> to some regional burns. Uh, you know, there's kind of like offshoots of it. Uh-huh. And uh, at these places, uh, the ones I've been to, there's a, they have a gift economy where ideally nobody's going to be selling this out of the other. You're sharing food. You're, there's more of a, you know, an openness in just how you relate to each other. And I, I remember just, you know, just stepping into that and then growing accustomed to this, uh, this environment where suddenly you're, you're smiling and saying hi to everybody instead of, you know, just sort of the head down, uh, mm-hmm. eyes on your, your feet approach to taking public transportation in a large metropolitan area. Like it just, it's, it's, it is kind of awesome. You find yourself realizing, whoa, we can, people can live like this. People can interact with each other in a different way. And on a smaller level, like when you, when you go to help somebody and you, you're, you're closer to like their pain or their suffering or whatever's going on in their life, it, that can also be this moment of awe where you're, you realize, you know, it's, it's not all about me. It's yeah, also see the whole about human this person. Struggle. Yeah. Yeah. You, you kind of do that powers of 10 zoom out from your own life. You know, what this study reminded me of was uh, something I'd read about in the past known as the overview effect uh, yes. in the literature about it, which uh, which has to do with a commonly reported feeling that uh, that astronauts talk about once they've been to space and seen the Earth from above. Yeah, yeah. The um, according to ESA and NASA reports, uh, we're talking about euphoric feelings that involve quote new insight into the meaning of life and the unity of mankind. Yeah. Uh, Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell described this sensation as the overview effect, and uh, and I and I have a nice summary of this from uh, Discovery Space um, writer, and I believe he's still head editor over there, Ian O'Neill, who I used to uh, used to work with. He explains he explains it as, as follows: quote He described this sensation gave him a profound sense of connectedness with a feeling of bliss and timelessness. He was overwhelmed by the experience. He became profoundly aware that each and every atom in the universe was connected in some way. And on seeing Earth from space, he had an understanding that all the humans, animals, and systems were a part of the same thing, a synergistic whole. It was an interconnected euphoria. Huh. Because the Earth is so small and, and we're up above it in a spaceship. Essentially. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine anything more literally awe inspiring than that, right? I mean, that, that's almost perfectly the definition of awe, uh, realizing the smallness being diminished in the face of, of incomparably vast phenomena. When you're in space and you suddenly realize that Earth isn't the universe, it's a it's a tiny rock mm-hmm. and where these tiny creatures occupying the surface of the rock. It, yeah, it, I can certainly see how that would be sort of the ultimate experience of awe and how it could cause one to, I don't know, to just allow all of the petty squabbles of human life to to dissolve into this this nothingness. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that interrupts the sort of me, me, me narrative, that default mode network that goes on in our mind. It kind of comes back to mindfulness, you know, just yeah. getting out of your own story. And if it takes going into space to do that, if it takes uh, helping somebody out, I don't know, delivering a meal or something, engaging in some level of, uh, of altruistic behavior, then uh, then do it. Yeah, give it a give it a try. That would be my recommendation. Not only to everyone else, I'm not, you know, just speaking on a podium here. Like I, I want to take that on myself as a challenge for the new year in a, you know, in a, an official way and not until February. It sounds like a good one. <laughs>
I, I want to encourage myself to be more altruistic by standing at the lip of a volcano, an active one, staring into it more <laughs> often, more often at least than I do now. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so we've, we've talked about these studies and as we said at the beginning, we, I mean, we can't even come close to covering the full breadth of studies in this area. You yeah, know, it's ongoing. How, We're right. going to see countless more in the years to follow. Yeah, how, how psychology affects and influences moral behavior. But that's sort of just a sampling of the kind of research that's out there. And so I, I'm wondering if we can take any of the stuff we've looked at in this episode, the findings we've found, and turn them into strategies for tricking your brain into doing good. Well, I have a little bit uh, of advice here, and this this comes from um, Charles uh, Duhigg's The Power of Habit. And he points out that every habit starts with a psychological pattern called a habit loop. And there, it's a three-part process. Mm-hmm. So first there's a cue or trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and let a behavior unfold. And then there's routine. And finally there's reward, something that your your brain likes. It helps it remember the habit loop in the future. Uh, so habit-making behavior, all this ties to a part of the brain called the, the basal ganglia. This is where we find emotions and memories and pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And the basal ganglia takes behavior and turns it into an automatic routine, kind of like a, a hot key for the human body. Oh, like, okay. Push this. This is what happens when this Here's stimuli the, presents uh, itself. The macro. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be, when we say action, it could be an action, but we could also be just like, this is the way I think in response to something. Um, now decisions, on the other hand, are made by a different part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. But as soon as a behavior becomes automatic, the decision-making part of your brain uh, goes into a, a, a sort of sleep mode. And and, inv- and, uh, and it's important to note that environment enforces this as well. So, like, if you go on a vacation, if you travel, or go to, just go to a different environment, um, this can mix things up because you're changing the stimuli around you. And it's one of the reasons that vacations are a great place, a great time to focus on changing a habit because you're stepping outside of your normal stimuli. I, I, I think that sounds true. I've found that to be true in my life, I think. Mm-hmm. Life-changing decisions are often made at a time when you are not under your normal circumstances. Yeah. Um, I think this is, this is an interesting way of looking at it. And, and one thing you could take away from this is that if you're talking about making deliberate decisions to change your moral behavior, they're not going to have to be deliberate decisions forever, right? Right. It would just have to be, you'd have to make that deliberate decision enough times long enough to, to establish a habit. Right. And then once you've established a habit, you don't have to be so deliberate about it anymore. It's just the new way you do things. Right. But just remember that the old way you do things and the environment in which you do them is going to be uh, a hurdle to overcome in making that change. Because, uh, you know, whatever you're planning to do, stand on the edge of a volcano or uh, share half your sandwich with someone who's hungry, uh, there's still going to be that temptation to sit in front of the uh, Xbox and play a game instead when you see that little green eye staring at you. But maybe if the game you're playing on the Xbox is so awe-inspiring that it really <laughs> does diminish your sense of self, it would make you more altruistic. Okay, maybe. That sounds like a good uh, a good. Uh, uh, premise for a study. Well, let's see. Let, let's design a video game to hit all of these features we've talked about. So you, you, you'd have a game that at the you have to enter your credit card information in the game. <laughs> it gives you all inspiring scenarios where you you see uh, amazing cosmic powerful events that you have no control over, and then you're you're faced with a single anecdotal case of a person who's suffering rather than the whole statistical uh, overview of the problem. 
And then the game forces you to endure a ritual pain ceremony. Okay. Uh, you have to go through a, a communal ceremony with, that hurts your body. Then the game connects you with other users who do something nice for you, and you get to experience the contagion of generosity. Uh, then the game asks you to report your moral behavior to your social network, but gives you uh, and lets you report, you know, whatever you want, but gives you enough time that you can sit there and be deliberate and think about it so that you're honest instead of uh, immediately defaulting to cheat mode. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I think throw in a few more cutscenes, and we have the next Metal Gear game. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Metal Gear Charity. <laughs> <laughs> Charitable Snake is your character in this, uh, this particular particular game now now what kind of charitable organization would uh would a metal gear game oh Oh, i don't know it's a complicated question they really get into some uh tense uh like there's a lot of tense real life stuff wrapped up in some of the more recent installments right so i I I haven't played them i don't know uh i would guess it would maybe maybe relate to uh i mean refugee scenarios of war-torn regions i mean they're all they all deal with kind of guerrilla situations and international wrongdoings so Do do they still have giant robots would you build a giant robot that feeds the hungry I think they're still giant robots. They tend to occur at the end of the game, and I burn out before I get to them. So, oh, I see. So they're just kind of like the gods of Metal Gear that I never actually witnessed. Okay. Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier uh, a couple of times, you know, this, this is a big field, and maybe this is a, a field where we will have the chance to return to it in the future. There, I'm sure, are going to be plenty more studies coming out all the time about psychology and moral behavior, and maybe we can revisit the topic then. Yeah. And, you know, uh, on the subject of, of charities, this would be something interesting to, to discuss in a maybe a future listener mail topic. If there's a particular charity that's near and dear to your heart, you know, like a vetted charity of some sort, uh, let us know about it. Oh, it'd, yeah. It'd be kind of fun to, to share these out and spread the word about, about some of the causes uh, out there in the world. Yeah, please do. And one last thing uh, at this time of year. Good luck with your New Year's resolution, whatever it is, self-serving or not. Yeah. And if you don't get it in January, just pick it up the next month for Chinese New Year. That's what I do. Hey, in the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you find all of our episodes, our videos, blog posts, links out to social media accounts. We're, uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter as Blow the Mind. We're on Tumblr as Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Follow us on those, uh, on those formats if you use them. And if you want to get in touch with us with any feedback on this or other recent episodes, or if you want to let us know what your favorite charity is or what your New Year's resolution is, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.